The question is, did he or didn't he? In the fall of 1932, baseball legend Babe Ruth, about five years past his prime, would only play about three more seasons and only two more with the New York Yankees. He led his team that year to the World Series. In fact, they won the American League pennant and in position to win the World Series would be the last World Series victory for the famous home run slugger. The Yankees were playing the Chicago Cubs. So if you know anything about Cubs lore, you know they didn't win <laughs> because they didn't win for over 100 years. Uh, they went to the World Series a few times, but they, they believed that they were cursed. In fact, they would not win the World Series for 84 more years after this series ended. But it was during the third game of the World Series, the Yankees having won games one and two at home. They were in Chicago, and the Cubs fans were lively. And they were booing, and they were hissing at the Yankee players and throwing fruit and other things at them. Well, you know, that didn't sit well with the Yankees. And apparently it made Babe Ruth really angry. Well, he stepped up for batting practice before the game. And apparently, uh, the way people describe it, he hit the ball in ways he hadn't hit in many years. In fact, uh, in ways he hadn't hit the whole year. Nine of the balls that he hit went out of the park. And uh, as he walked by the dugout, he looked at the Cubs players and he said something like, we're not going back to New York. In other words, we're going to win this series right here in Chicago. Well, when the game started, the Cubs players began trash-talking the Yankees. And Babe Ruth remembers, uh, the way he described it later, they called him things like Big Belly and Balloon Head. You know, I don't know what trash-talking was like when you were growing up. Uh, that, that, that doesn't seem right. Uh, uh, but I guess in the 30s, that's what you did to insult somebody. He did have a kind of a large head, though, so I can see that. Well, in the first inning, he hit a three-run home run, putting the Yankees up three to nothing. But over the next few innings, the Cubs clawed their way back into the game and got even with the Yankees. And when the fifth inning opened, the score was tied four to four. Now, as some tell the story, when Babe Ruth got up to the plate, after two quick strikes, he pointed toward center field and homered in that exact spot to give his team the lead. The Yankees never trailed again in the game and won the series in the next game to sweep, sweep the Cubs four games to none. So did he call the shot or didn't he? Well, let's see. This is a very short clip. It's going to repeat. Do you see his hand? And there's Babe Ruth gesturing. Now, Lou Gehrig's on deck at this point. He's the next batter up. He confirmed later that Babe called his shot. Gehrig said, quote, I've, I've played a lot of baseball, but I've never seen so much nerve on display before. But Babe Ruth himself denied it. And then he affirmed it. And then he denied it again. No one really ever got a straight answer out of him, though all the Cubs players said for the rest of their lives, all the way to their graves, no way did he call a shot. You can turn that off. Either way, it doesn't matter much, right? The home run now lives in legend. And I showed you that video because what Babe Ruth did, if he did, was one of those wow moments in the history of sports. Truly amazing. 
What you're looking at here, though you didn't realize it when I read it, is one of the wow moments of world history. This is on uh, par with Caesar crossing the Rubicon. This is George Washington crossing the Delaware uh, at the end of 1776. All of his troops about to be released, and they had no more money to pay them. The American Revolution is going to come to an end. The Brits are going to win. And, and, that, and that's where we're at. I mean, you go to the big Waterloo, you know, with Napoleon. The big events in human history, in world history, and this is one of those wow moments. And the reason I say that is because not only does Nineveh fall, but God called his shot. Imagine for a moment, you and your family are going to sit down to a documentary later tonight called The Fall of Nineveh. The documentary has footage, first-person account footage of a mighty army outside the gates of a powerful, huge city. The army is fitted for battle. Their armament glittering in the Middle Eastern sun. And what you see in the documentary as historians and scholars, because they always got to put those guys in, you know, uh, as they show the different pictures, uh, a Ken Burns documentary, uh, they show this, they'll have some guy who wrote a 19 volume set on the fall of Nineveh. Uh, they're giving his background information, telling you all the little bits and details of the story. As you're watching and the historians and scholars are walking you through the battle, you see the fight around the city in, in what are called the suburbs of the city followed by an assault on the city itself. Now, of course, it's a family show. The footage isn't too graphic, but it's graphic enough that you know how horrible it was for that the Nineveh was destroyed. You see the attacking army's engineers reroute a river outside the city so that the lower parts of the city are flooded by the Tigris, including the king's palace. A little later, near the end of the show, the main city gates are breached, and, and then a little later, they see women and children walking out of the city in chains, accompanied by their servants. And then, maybe even a little later, you see men carrying out carved statues under their arms or together holding these different pieces of expensive furniture, uh, pieces of art, all the treasures of Nineveh, of which it was immense. Then at the very end of the show, the narrator lets you in on a little secret. The video you just watched with your family, that documentary hasn't actually happened yet. In fact, it's going to be years in the future. But the video is so dramatic and so real that you believe it's already occurred. Now, maybe Babe Ruth didn't call his shot, but God sure did. And that leads us to two unassailable points. Friends, number one, God's will is invincible. You, you just can't go against it. Nahum previews the army that will attack this city. The shield of the mighty men is made red. The valiant men or the soldiers are dressed in scarlet. We know the army later on are Babylonians and Medians, the Medes. They would later form go with an alliance with the Persians to take over Babylon. 
But the Babylonians and the Median forces are the alliance. These are the soldiers they're describing. And Nahum describes their look. Their shields are red. They're wearing red uniforms. And he describes their chariots here. The chariots are made of wood and metal and leather. But here those metal parts are flashing in the sun. So they even look like maybe they're on fire. You can imagine how powerful it would have been in the ancient world to see something like this right outside your window. Then he says, the army, are they carry fir trees? Well, I think here he's talking about spears. The armies are raising their spears. And you almost like you'd have a wave at, the, at a ball game where everybody's going around the stands giving the wave. You kind of get the idea here that the armies, they have their spears and they're shaking their spears in the air in some court sort of cadence. Maybe they're shouting while they're shaking their spears all together doing the same movements. That's kind of what it says here. In fact, when it says the fir trees are terribly shaken, it's not a metaphor that the trees outside the gates are so afraid of the army that they're, that they're quivering. It means that the spears that the soldiers are carrying their hands, that they are being shaken. And so these armies are raising their spears, and all of that is to terrorize the enemy. That's the preview Nahum is giving to people who are going to later have their city destroyed. Then he describes that the skirmish will begin in the suburbs. The chariots, verse 4, will rage in the streets. They will jostle against one another in the broad ways, seem like torches, run like lightnings. Now, because the main city hasn't fallen yet, right? You're, you know how those cities are built. You have a, a main city, big wall around the main city, maybe moats and all those kinds of things. And then you have outside of that, you would have uh, the villages around the city. You would have the farms around the city that provide the food for the people living in the city. You would, you would also have their, uh, the marketplace. All of that would go on outside the city gates. That would be the suburbs of the city. And he says here, the chariots raging in the streets. That's the war, the skirmish that's taking place outside the gates. And it says here that those chariots now are actually jostling against one another um, as they are actually in the fog of war. They're turning one way and then the next. And in, and in an ancient battle, there would not be necessarily the kind of discipline you might see in modern warfare. And even today, there's a fog of war. If you, if you understand how warfare works, there's, there's fear in the hearts of the soldiers and, and there's uh, difficulty in communication, there's noise. And here you have these chariots there rushing around. That's kind of the imagery Nahum is giving. They're moving here, they're moving there. They're just kind of moving through the streets at random. And, and because of the sun glittering off the metal on the chariots, now it looks like they're, the lightning is just kind of running through the city, like they're torches, like they're on fire. It doesn't mean that they're actually, there's actual fire necessarily outside the city. It just means it, it appears that there's fire outside the city. And so you get the picture here. You know, there's going to be an attack. Here's the army coming. And now there's a skirmish going outside the city walls. And then finally in verse 5, Nahum says, okay, then they turn and they attack the main city. He, in verse 5, that's the attacking general, shall convene his army. That's what it means to recount your worthies. He's going to convene his army. So they've all been kind of rushing through the suburbs, but now he's going to stop everything, pull back for a minute, get everything set. They actually have pictures of ancient battering rams. 
and they're going to actually break down the walls of the city, or that's what you think they'll do. This army will stumble in their walk. They will make haste to the wall thereof, and, and the defense, that is their defense, I believe, shall be prepared. So this Babylonian general gathers his army for one attack against the walled city of Nineveh. It's a, it's a powerful city. It's a huge wall. And the fighting outside the city has been so intense that if you go to chapter 3 and you look in verse 3, look what it says. The horseman lifts up both the bright sword and glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain and the great number of carcasses. And there is none end of their corpses, and they stumble upon their corpses. So the, it, what's happening here, actually, when it says this army, the, the general, the attacking general of the Babylonians and the Medes, some believe it may have actually been a young Nebuchadnezzar, but this attacking general, he convenes his army, and now they are turning their attention at the wall of the city, but so many people have died in the battle around the city that the army itself, they're stumbling in their haste. They're running toward the wall, and they're stumbling in their haste over the bodies of the dead. That's pretty powerful imagery. And they get to the wall, and they set up their, their, their siege against the city, and now they're going to attempt to breach the wall. And then they have to do something. I don't know uh, what you would do if you're in a city, and there's a big army outside, and they're about to attack you. What would you do? Well, what they used to do was they would go at the top of the wall and start hurling things over the wall. I mean, what do you got I can throw? You know, so they just start hurling things down uh, on the army outside. Well, you know, I don't know how many times that's going to have to happen before the army down below goes. We, we can't have our army keep getting cut off by all these people hurling things over the wall. Uh, that's a war of attrition. That's not going to work. So actually, it says here, they put up a shield. It says they're the defense shall be prepared, that's not defending the city, that's defending the attacking army. And I think what the writer here at Nahum is actually talking about is, is actually they would put up some kind of shield over their heads. It's believed that a chariot would hold four people. You would have the guy who's driving, you would have two guys who are shooting uh, arrows, and then you'd have a third, a fourth guy, and he would be there, and he would have a whole, a big tall shield, he would hold it over the heads of the men who were in that chariot to keep them from being hit by rocks or other arrows that were shot their way. Whatever is the case, they're setting up some sort of special defense. I know that the hoplites, the Greek hoplites, uh, that was the soldiers in the Greek army, they had these big long shields and then they would have a long spear and they would actually lock together and so that they could march on an opposing army. And, and it wasn't just like you fighting against another person. Actually, uh, this comes later, right? This is post-Alexander. But these hoplites would march in, and they would kind of push the other army back with their shields. And then they had their spears kind of sitting out between the shields. So that was the way they would fight. The only way to beat them, by the way, is to kind of go around behind them because they, they couldn't maneuver very well. Well, they've got their shield up. Remember... In chapter 1 and verse 15, the Ninevites had rushed to the wall to defend their city. They're ready to throw rocks. They're ready to hurl spears. They're ready to shoot arrows down on those who are attacking them. But their defense is useless. And my friends, all of this description that you see here in the, these first verses here of chapter 2, Nahum 
is, is previewing the attack on the city. He's describing the skir skirmish that's going to happen outside the suburbs and the final attack that will occur on the inner wall of the city. And all of it is just to tell the people who are in Nineveh, you cannot defend yourself because God himself has said it will end. And I think, my friends, that there is some great applications we can make out of this. Number one, our country is no different. If you think because our economy is stronger than the rest of the world. I mean, I think I read somewhere that the California economy would be, if they were all on their own, in the top 30 economies in the world as just a standalone economy. That's pretty incredible. If you start taking all the millionaires in the United States, of which there are more than 22 million millionaires, you take our economy and you stack it up against all the other economies of the world and they, and they don't even compare. China is getting close, but they're not there. You start doing that and you say, well, we're so much power, more powerful than everybody else. And then you start thinking about our legal system. With all the faults that our legal system has, it's still better than all the others. I mean, uh, they say democracy is a is a really a terrible form of government, except for all the others. You know, I mean, the others are worse. Uh, as bad as it seems here, if you live at all for any time outside the United States, you'll immediately realize why America is so great. And then you take our military. Uh, people tremble at China. Uh, if we went into a war with China, uh, unless the Lord intervened against us, if it was just a if you just take God out of the equation, it wouldn't even be a contest. We have so much more armament, military. Our military spending in 2020 dwarfed the next 10 countries combined, including China. We spent $778 billion on our military. Uh, we borrowed all the money, but we spent it. That's good. But if you think all of those things can prevent God from overthrowing America, you're missing the point of this text. Nineveh is the superpower of their day. Nobody could believe this was going to happen. I'm going to show you this later, but this comes out about the time that Manasseh is, is king. Here's Manasseh. He's king. He's already killed off Isaiah. And Manasseh, now, this, this letter, this prophecy is... is sent out by Nahum, and in all likelihood, the king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, who has the largest library in the world, the first real library in the world, although it's all cuneiform. You know, it's not books you can check out. I'll take that clay tablet with all those little chicken scratches on it. You know, that's how it would be. It's impossible to read unless you could read cuneiform. <laughs> who can read that? I don't think they could read that. But. <laughs> they got all these little clay tablets, but he had a library, and, and I'm sure Nahum now is part of his library, and he's reading this. He knows what's, what it's talking about. He can read this in his own language and say, wait a minute, you're saying we're going to be destroyed? Hey, hey, Manasseh, why don't you come be with me for a while? And he's got an image of Manasseh being led with a hook in his nose, uh, like a fisherman hooked him with his pole and, and now carrying him off to uh, Nineveh. Manasseh was in jail in Nineveh for quite some time. They're the superpower of their day. 
but they're going to be overthrown. You could also apply it this way. What about a church? You know, you say, well, we're God's people. We want to do right. We love the Lord. Surely God will protect us. Surely God will take care of us and watch over us and keep uh, bad things from happening to us. Really? If we disobey the Lord, can't we expect maybe something like this to happen to us? You say, no, it never happened to us. Go read, read Revelation 1 through 3, where God says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your candlestick, your church from its place. I'm going to destroy your church. And God gives all of those warnings to those churches, saying, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, if you don't change, your, your church is going to be gone. Then I think it's in all likelihood we should take this to heart. You know, just because we want to do things right today doesn't mean God's going to protect us for all time. We have to keep obeying the Lord. And then I think our personal lives are no different. You know, we can be chastened by God. We can be taken into exile, as it were. You, you ever meet a Christian who, who he's the opposite of a green thumb? Everything he does turns bad. Everything that happens in her life is, is bad and upside down and backwards. You ever meet people like that? Do you wonder what God is doing? Maybe God's trying to teach a lesson. Maybe God's got a plan that he's doing in that person's heart. Only that person, individual really knows. But I'm just telling you, God can do this to people. And I think the Jewish exile illustrates perfectly the chastening we can endure as believers. The point I'm trying to make here, friends, is that whatever God wills, he can do because his will is invincible. Now, if you believe that, then the next point just builds right off of that idea. Not only is God's will invincible then, man's greatness is nothing in comparison to God's. If you keep reading, there are three images the prophet wants you to see. First, he wants you to come and see the shocking sight of the Ninevite ladies being led away captive. He says in verse 6, the gates of the river shall be opened, the palace shall be dissolved, and the Huzah. I, unfortunately here, the translator of, of this passage for the King James translators, he had about as much Hebrew as I have. Okay? <laughs> this, is, this is like, I mean, I've had three semesters of graduate Hebrew, but uh, I, can, I reminded of when I was taking my Hebrew exam and Christopher was sitting apart for, across from me, just ah, and having a great time. And I was looking at him, thinking, I'm going to shove my pencil into his neck. I was so upset. And uh, on the way home, we were comparing notes. And I said, what do you think about that passage on, on uh, Jonathan from the Old Testament? He goes, that wasn't Jonathan. That word, not a proper noun. That word means sword. I don't know, how did you get Jonathan? And he laughed for half an hour. And really, I kept thinking, I could just swerve this car into a tree. I mean... The word huzab there, I think, is a mistranslation. The word means to stand. And it has the idea of something that has been decreed, something that has been established or set up in place and will not be moved. So he's saying here, I believe, that this is decreed. What he said, the gates will be opened, the palace dissolved, and this will be decreed. The people will be led away captive. The people will be brought up. The, the Ninevite ladies shall be brought up 
with, her, with their maids. And they will be actually beating their chests in woe. So the, the, the army now likely has captured the gates controlling the Tigris River. So remember, Nineveh is on the banks of the Tigris. Ashurbanipal's palace is right on the very banks of the Tigris. And, and his library is right there too. And, and what's likely happened now is these Babylonians and Medes have diverted the river, in, the water into the city and they flooded those lower lying areas. That's actually what he's talking about. The gates of the river shall be opened. That's actually, I think, what he's saying. And, and you can imagine now the water is put, being pushed up into these clay buildings, and what's it going to do to those buildings? It's just melting and dissolving the walls. They're actually just melting right back down into the river. The palace is being destroyed. And so the powerful Ashurbanipal has to leave his own palace, and the people have to leave. And then the city is taken captive. Here we have, instead of a proper noun, Huzab, the idea is this has been decreed. It is going to stand. And this visual picture then of what happens when the palace and the city is taken is, is really horrible because what, why are these ladies being led out of the city? Where are they headed? They're headed into slavery. Here are the arrogant, the proud women of Nineveh with their social standing, with all their personal wealth. And Nineveh is the wealthiest city in the world at this point. It, it is the United States. And you can imagine all the wealth of that city now is, is just gone. It's going to be removed. And the women themselves and their children and their, and their own servants are now walking out of the city. And I don't know exactly... Some commentators describe the way women were led away captive. I don't know if it's, if it's um, abusive or not. The King James, and really the Hebrew text doesn't give you any indication. But, but clearly they're upset, right? They're beating their chests. Because they know that in all intents and purposes, the way they view life, their lives are over. And now as you see the shocking sight of these ladies coming out of the city, now think about and marvel at all of the wealth of the city being plundered. I love verse 8 because here's, a, here's almost a little play on words. Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. So think of, think of a pool of water. It, it's fed by maybe a little stream and it's got maybe some tributaries that it leads out of it, but it's, it's this nice, healthy pool of water. He says, this pool of water, yet they shall flee away. And then we have some words being uttered. Stand, stand, they cry, but none shall look back. So the imagery here now, the prophet is saying, just like Nineveh was flooded. Nineveh uh, was a pool of water. It's kind of using it metaphorically. But literally it was a pool of water, right? I mean, he, they flooded the city. But he says, you were, you were like this pool of water. You were protected. You were safe. You were glorious. And then now you're being drained. It's like God reached down and it was a tub and he just pulled out the drain, pulled out the plug, and you're... as the water is kind of glugging its way down into that drain, making that little whirlpool that happens. You know what I'm talking about. Run your finger through it. Got that whirlpool. 
And that's what's actually happening. Nineveh is draining away. And, and what's the draining of Nineveh? It's all the people who are now fleeing the city. It's rats jumping off the sinking ship. And in all likelihood, it's the army of, of, the, of the Assyrians. They're running. And people are crying out. From, you can almost get it from the walls of the city. Come back. Help us. Save us. And the, and the Assyrian army. Oh, I'm not coming back. I'm going to take what I can run into the hills, hope to live out the remainder of my life in peace. They called for him to return, but Nineveh drains. And then we have this metaphor being used because even as they drain of people, now they drain of all the silver and gold that they had taken, all of the stuff. There is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. Everything is being removed. The city is now defenseless. And now the Babylonians and the Medes. And by the way, it struck me in the middle of this. Do you remember how Babylon is conquered later? The Medes do the same thing to Babylon, right? They get through the, through the river uh, and get into Babylon. I, and it makes me wonder because the Babylonians were engineers. The Medes were not engineers. I personally am just going to guess that the Babylonians showed the Medes how to conquer Babylon later, right? They probably are the ones who figured out how to flood the city of Nineveh from the Tigris, and the Medes go, great idea, and later on use that to destroy Babylon itself. Just speculation. No way to prove that. But here you have the city defenseless. It's being plundered just like it plundered other cities, and all the treasures are now coming out. You see the ladies come out being taken up captive, and now you see the treasures coming out all the statues and the pieces of art and all those things. And you say, was it really plundered? I have proof that it's plundered. Uh, we should all take a missions trip to London. I don't know why we would do that, but it would be great. And while in London, we could go to the British Museum. And while at the British Museum, we could go down and you could see the walls of Assyria from the palace of Ashurbanipal. They're actually in the museum. The walls that were in his palace are in England. I mean, everything was taken. There's nothing left. Nineveh is destroyed utterly so that historians will say now for another 2,800 years, there was no Nineveh until 1840. It's that destroyed. And how do you think the people are feeling watching all of this? The average person, the Ninevite, who just goes about his day. Maybe he has a little farm outside the city walls, and he goes out every morning, waves to the keeper of the wall, the gate, and, hey, have a good day, gives him a little tip at Christmas time, whatever their holiday is. And uh, uh, their pagan festival on December 25th, whatever they do, you know because that goes back centuries. But they just, here you go, here's some money. And they go out to the little gate, and you come down, and you sit down out there, and he's got his little hoe, and he's got his rake, and he's working the ground, and he maybe has some servants that from pe peoples that the Ninevites had captured in their armies, the Assyrians, and he's got some servants, and they're working his little ground, and he's got his fruit and vegetables, and he sells them in the market there, and he makes some money, and he's living there. He's just an average Ninevite. How does he feel? Notice what it says here in verse 10. Nineveh is empty and void and waste. And the heart melts. The knees knock together. In, in, his, in his stomach, he feels pain. That, that horrible, 
sinking feeling you get when you realize, uh-oh, this is terrible. And the faces of them, and here another little mistranslation, they become colorless. It's not that they gather blackness and I don't even know what that would describe. It's that they become pale. They lose all their color. That's, this is sheer terror. The cities being taken, the proud Assyrians are now helpless. And look at that Hebrew wordplay. Three words in Hebrew that are almost identical. Pillaged, plundered, and stripped. In English, it would be something like this. Destroyed, deserted, and desolate. This beautiful little wordplay that Nahum puts. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And now they're terrified so that their knees are knocking together. And I don't know if you've ever had terror overcome you, but, but you do have that kind of trembling. And you have then that fear in the pit of your stomach. It says their hearts are melting and panic on their faces. These once proud, arrogant, almighty Assyrians are now in abject fear for what God will do to them. And none of that had happened when, Nineveh, when Nahum wrote his prophecy. But then all of it did. And do you know here, if you believe that God's will is invincible, I believe that. I absolutely believe that God's will is invincible. If you believe that, then what you have to believe after that, and it makes perfect sense from this passage, is that as great as man can be, and man is great, God looks at man sometimes, and God himself, it says in kind of an anthropomorphic way, God is surprised or he's marveled at man, what man can do. Man is amazing creation of God, but his greatness is nothing like God's. And when man says, I'm going to build a tower to the heavens, God will just, I'll just change your language. Well, here, I, I'm going to have this great city and will never be overthrown. I'm just going to divert a river into your town, wash it all away, and everybody will run for the hills. So as great as man is, he's not as great as God. And you know, that's a reoccurring theme in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. And the application is simple. Why put your confidence in man? Why be confident in yourself? Why be confident in man, in, in any person? Why be confident in a, a Supreme Court justice? Why be confident in a president? Why be confident in a governor? Why be confident in a military leader? Why have any confidence in some economic figure, a businessman? Why have any confidence in that at all? Trust in God alone. Oh, is it maybe just over a year ago, uh, we all woke up to the terrible news that a high rise in Florida had crumbled. Do you remember that? Uh, I read a story that was just unbelievably fascinating. A man had heard some things going on in the building, and he had heard it in the past, didn't know what it was, but this now it was really loud. It woke him up, and he went outside his door. And he opened his door. He almost took a step out of the darkness, and if he had, he would have fallen however many stories because the building had sheared off right at his door. He was alive. But the building from his door forward was gone. It was gone. Now we know now that people have made a bunch of mistakes. 
in how they constructed the building. We know that the Florida weather and the salt and the sea uh, does certain things on on metal and iron and how it affected. And, and there were uh, people who actually looked at this building and said, there's a problem. We know the way the pool was situated and the way the, that they put the cars in the garage underneath the building. All of that had a, an, an impact on this structure. We know all that in hindsight. But I don't imagine anybody got up that morning, the morning before, went out of their house, locked their door and said, you know, this building, <laughs> I, I doubt it makes it another day. You know, honey, we ought to sell because and get our stuff out because this just isn't. I mean, look at this. This isn't going to work. I don't think anybody thought that. Nope, they just went about their business. And I think in life, we just have a tendency. We go about our day forgetting God has his will established. And we just kind of put our confidence in technology and, and in in the way life has been, that it just can always continue on. And we don't know the day God's going to say, okay, your, your house is going to fall. But for everybody out there who's living apart from God, their house is going to fall. Jesus said it best. You build your life on sand. When the rains come, the winds blow, great is the fall of it. Put your confidence and trust in God. That alone can save you. Let's close in prayer.